welcome back, loyal Patreon supporters, to the Jurassic Park Minute Bonus Weekend Edition. I'm Kyle. I'm ready. And of course, we thank you very much for your patronage, and thank you for joining us today, where we're going to be talking about the third film in the Jurassic Park series, Jurassic Park 3. Now, Brady, uh, did you uh, did you find any anything new on your rewatch of Jurassic Park 3 in preparation for this podcast? I did. I did. A couple of things, and uh, things that I think make the movie much better than um, mm-hmm. I remember it being uh, after having watched it. I think the last time I watched this was a couple of years ago. Yeah, and uh, I think you, you and know, I had an impromptu Jurassic Park marathon one night. Some, something like that, yeah. We were and, just going to uh, watch the first one, and then we ended up watching all three uh, in one sitting. Um, yeah, and I got to hand it to it. I think that this series, um, these sequels, work pretty well in in within each other. Um, I really get the feeling that the Lost World is a sequel to Jurassic Park, and it it touches on the first film just enough. Uh, to remind you that it is part of a series, a continuing story, while still doing its own thing. And I think Jurassic Park 3 touches on the original films just enough to remind you that it's part of the same story, but it's an even better standalone movie than The Lost World would have been. Granted, The Lost World wasn't trying to do that, but I do respect uh, Jurassic Park 3 for um, being its own thing, and that is something that I've read Joe Johnston intended to do. So let me ask you this. Do you feel that Jurassic Park 3 is a better uh, third part of this continuing story, or is it more of a sequel to The Lost World? I think it's um, a better part of the continuing story. I think it, I I really do. Uh, And I don't think it echoes Jurassic Park or The Lost World that much, which, again, is to the film's credit. It's not trying to be. Um, It 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 knows what it wants to be. It seems to kind of sample some of the thematic elements from both of those movies as far as, like, you know, the the family element, you know. In Jurassic Park 1, we have these two kids that are the product of a nasty divorce, you know, and they're trying to get a little – their grandfather's trying to give them a fun weekend getaway. And Grant has to kind of fill in as the surrogate father figure for the family. This one, we have a broken family and ex-wife and ex-husband who are trying to to find their son – you know, who's who's trapped here on the island. And it seems to kind of like just kind of sample and just kind of pick up on these things and be like, all right, we're just right. going to kind of introduce these elements into the story. It doesn't really do a whole lot with them. But I think the focus of Jurassic Park 3 is really that it's a chase movie. And it mm-hmm. reminds me of a saying that William Friedrichen, the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection, has that the chase is the purest form of cinema. And, of course, he's kind of famous for this chase scene in... The French Connection, in which uh, Popeye Doyle's driving a car underneath an elevated train in Chicago to try to track down a heroin shipment uh, that's going through, and it's a fantastic chase scene. I think there's actually an, a real-life accident that happened during the filming of the car crash that they kept in the movie just because it was so visceral. And I think this movie has a lot of visceral elements to it. From the moment that they touch down on the island, and we'll get into the full plot of the movie here in a second, but from the moment they touch down on the island and encounter the Spinosaurus, it's just almost nonstop you know there's a couple little moments of relief but it's just it's it's moment to moment to moment and a lot of that has to do with the chaotic nature of the production of this movie but let's go ahead and talk real quick about how this movie came to be it seems like there was some trouble or maybe some shooting issues or some drama behind the scenes that went on with the lost world and the only thing i can 
I can relate to that is that Steven Spielberg was asked if he was going to direct a third Jurassic Park movie after The Lost World came out, and he said something like he would need a whole creative of Advil just to consider the idea of thinking about writing Jurassic Park 3, a production of it. Um, so it's had, it kind of sounds like he had had his fill of working with the studio on the movie and you know opted to go and shoot uh, the masterpiece Artificial Intelligence instead of doing this movie and handed the directing uh, off to his uh, effects director, Joe Johnston, who is, you know, Joe Johnston's a skilled director in his own right. He's got a lot of... Um, I, I, a lot of films to his name that people have seen that you know that grows fairly well. The Rocketeer, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, he also did uh, what October Sky, I think, and the 2010 Wolfman remake, and then of course probably his highest-grossing film, Captain America: The First Avenger, which I think he kind of probably got in his Rocketeer credentials. And you know, Joe Johnston is is a guy who. Um, he has a little bit of flair in it, but he's he's a competent director who can get a movie shot in on time and on budget. And I think he was kind of given this movie because of his work with Steven Spielberg, and the studio knew that he was gonna you know get the film in on time. However, it really suffers creatively um, on a script level, and that probably comes from the fact that you know there were some early drafts that were nowhere near each other in 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 story that you know, eventually became this movie. One of the original early drafts was about a group of teenagers uh, who were riding boats around and got stranded on Isla Sorna and met uh, an Alan Grant who was living like Robinson Crusoe in a treehouse on the island. The story was that Injun wouldn't let Grant near anything, so he just kind of like made himself his own little treehouse and got up inside of it. Well, the, Joe Johnston rejected that because he said the while the story was okay, uh, the dialogue between the characters sounded like I think what he said a bad episode of Friends. Yeah. Uh, so then a second draft of the script involved a pteranodon escaping from Isla Sorna and causing mysterious killings on the mainland, which was uh, to be investigated by Dr. Alan Grant and other characters. The project was greenlit, but five weeks before the shooting began, the entire script was rejected by Steven Spielberg and Joe Johnson. And at that point, the studio had already sunk $18 million into the, into the production of the movie. So that's crazy. Five weeks before the movie is supposed to start shooting they just scrap the whole thing and toss it on the back burner and then they you know of course as this as they do in these situations they bring in some other screenwriters to kind of help uh help fix the story and in this case they brought in uh, alexander payne who was famous for (laughs) alexander payne and jim taylor academy award nominated screenwriters yeah so these guys wrote like about schmidt election uh, I think Alexander Sideways. Payne actually directed Nebraska, which was nominated for a lot of Academy Awards recently, and also directed uh, a film called Citizen Ruth that starred a very young... Yeah, um, Laura Dern. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I, I was going to call her Ellie Sattler, as I am prone to do. But, um, you know, it's kind of funny that I think one of the reasons Joe Johnson had Ellie Sattler and Alan Grant not be a couple in this movie is because he said that... Uh, <laughs> That Sam Neill had, you know, aged. He's still a handsome-looking gentleman. Yeah. Had aged considerably since the movie, and Laura Dern still looks like she did 15 years prior. So the the, the age gap was even more <laughs> predominant in the two of them here. But um, let me ask you about that a little bit, Bree. How do you think this movie stood out as far as developing the characters of both Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler? Do you think it it picked up nicely after Jurassic Park? Did it do I, interesting yeah, things with the characters? Yeah, I do, um, especially with Alan Grant. Uh, and I would not... I, I think Joe Johnston's a very poor filmmaker. Um, he just happens to have some movies that worked relatively well. Uh, and 
he, um, yeah, I think uh, Alan Grant has evolved quite nicely. And I think that his, so his entire crux in the first film is his, you know, growing as a parental figure, father figure. And they brought that over. Uh, I would not have expected this movie to have really touched on that evolution, uh, that part of that character. But if you look at like all of the interactions he has with people in this film, he's hating it all. Um, barely enjoys uh, speaking to his um, his assistant, Billy. Mm -hmm. But he seems to be very invested in his relationship with Eric, the little kid. And it just shows that that, that is something he would have dodged from the, from the get-go uh, in the beginning of Jurassic Park. And here he is actually going out of his way, not even going out of his way, but just naturally enjoying that relationship. So I thought that that carried over really well. Yeah. Um, as far as Laura Dern is concerned, uh, you know, she doesn't really have a whole lot to do in this. I did think it was cool that she's not just in the beginning. They actually bring her back, and she's the person who saves the day and the whole thing. And she's yeah. doing it from, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I think they shot all of her stuff in one day. Uh, in this, oh, really? Yeah, just over the course of one day. And she's she's got a pretty it's it's more than a cameo you know she's she's there at the beginning we see that her character progression is kind of how it was from jurassic park she has this family she has a kid you know like she she wanted to she's clearly married to a you know a nice guy and kind of has her her own life and she does you know talk a little bit to grant there at the beginning of the movie kind of about the you know the the, the sounds that raptors make you know and do you still remember you know what they sound yeah. like and he says i, I try to forget them you know there's yeah. still some post-traumatic stress disorder that's going on you know in their lives i think that's very cool that the jurassic films do touch on post-traumatic uh, excuse me post-traumatic stress um as a real thing and it's something that definitely would have happened to these people the lost world does a particularly good job of that mm -hmm. uh and this film does as well and you see it there in their conversation, which feels a little bit forced, a little bit, um, I don't want to say poorly acted because these are very competent actors. I don't really know where that sense of awkwardness is coming in, maybe in the writing. But the fact that they're still touching on the subject of PTSD is very, very cool. And then he also shows some other signs of it later, uh, one being the dream sequence where a raptor is talking to him on a plane, which in a movie that I had some respect for, takes me out of it and almost loses me 100%. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah, I actually so, thought that was kind of funny. but. <laughs> um, well, let's see. There's the... Um, so let's see. Let, let's. I want to go back a little bit further towards the beginning. Uh, sure. I was very excited when I heard that there was the prospect of a uh, Jurassic Park 3, uh -huh. another Jurassic Park film coming out. I wasn't... As we've said in our review for The Lost World, I, I don't think it really... Um, appealed that greatly to either of us and I think that might have been the case with a lot of people not everybody uh, but a lot of people and Universal really took their time in saying okay 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 yeah, let's let's feel this out let's make sure we're gonna do something you know worthwhile here and so they you know they went out of their way to make sure that they didn't just go with this kind of bizarre uh, original idea like you said the bad episode of friends as he called it um, and they they got things that they knew people were going to want to come back for and going to want to see, and that one of them was the character of Alan Grant, mm -hmm. Sam Neill. So yeah, I was very excited when I heard that there was going to be a third Jurassic Park film. And then, uh, you know, one of the things that you said was lacking in, it was a small touch, but it's still something that kind of threw you off right from the get-go in The Lost World, was the fact that the opening credits weren't over just black, over a black screen. Yeah. And I think the very beginning of this film kind of echoes 
uh, Jurassic Park with the ripples going over all the studio logos and then of course that title's over a black screen. So it's starting off kind of strong. And then we, we go into the fact that Isla Sorna is, you know, as we remember John Hammond's goal at the end of uh, the, uh, excuse me, the sequel was that the island would keep, the location of the island would go undisclosed. And then we see right off the bat that there are some people who know about it. And these guys who do the, uh, what, what do they call that? Parasailing? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, parasailing, yeah. Yeah, who are running that business illegally and are aware of it. So the movie starts off interesting. It's interesting. It's not this huge grand scale opening or anything. It's just kind of a small thing going on. It's, it's mysterious and doesn't really force its way of explaining itself down your throat. So um, I was happy with that. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, with the way this film is starting off. Now, granted, it does have that big restricted and bold red letters that comes up. That was Yeah, that, that was cheesy, really but, cheesy. Uh, yeah. I, I, was, I felt the same way the whole time I was thinking about it. I, we stated this in our Lost World review, and I think I need to state it again. First impressions are everything as far as movies go, and when you introduce the opening credit sequence, you need to do it in a way that it it stamps something on the audience, you know, and like literally yeah, right. this movie stamps the words restricted as if it were a giant rubber stamp that someone was stamping on something. You know, I think about yeah. the opening sequence in drive drive starts mm-hmm. off. Oh, nothing man. to tell you about the character. Uh, it just shows you, you know, the driver standing there taking a phone call and then it cuts into this extremely tense 10 minute long action sequence. And then it goes into almost this music video, this, you know, it's like a shot of LA and then shots of the characters and kind of like sets the tone for the whole movie. It has this great Kavinsky song and it's just like Michael Mann to a T, you know, it's like, that's like how you open a damn movie, you know, and Lost World just seems to completely like forget how to open a movie. You know, Jurassic Park has just those, you know, the, like we have at the beginning of all of our episodes, it just has that like that. And then the words Jurassic Park, it's mysterious. It sets the tone immediately. We cut to the shot of the branches swaying lost world, just some text on the screen. And then it's over the ocean. Jurassic Park three starts off pretty good. We've got Jurassic Park. We have the scratches. Okay, I'll give it to you. It's a little bit cheesy. We zoom in through the scratches. Okay, you're starting to lose me. Right. Boom, restricted on it. Uh, come on. But then I agree yeah. with you. I think the well, parasailing sequence at the beginning does set up a very mysterious tone to the movie. It does, but you can also tell right off the bat that this is substandard quality. And what I mean by that is you, you can just tell it's not Steven Spielberg behind the, behind the camera. Now, granted... We know going into this that we're not going to see a Steven Spielberg film, so we're not going to be seeing something that resembles his work. We're going to see a Joe Johnston movie, which is what Joe Johnston movies are about overall is about just having fun. And this movie doesn't try and hide that. It doesn't try and go for something overly intellectual. It's, it's like you said, a chase movie. And I think that this film, I equate this movie to uh, Jaws 4, which I might lose the respect of some listeners out there, but I actually think Jaws 4 holds up very well in that series. I I don't mind that movie at all. And both of these films have that made-for-TV feel to them. And with that in mind, I kind of cut cut that substandard quality some slack because it's not trying to be the first two films. It's trying to be its own thing, like Joe Johnson set out to do. Make it a standalone movie that's got its own feel to it, which it does, especially through its production design. And... um, and then that, that, that kind of helps me get into the movie a little bit more and forgive some stuff that's, that's cheesy, like some uh, kind of forced performances or awkward storylines and things like that. 
And I'm just I'm going into a Jurassic film that you know brings back this uh, great character Alan Grant. It's going to give me some really good dinosaur uh, action, and that's all I'm really going into it for. Um, and it's, I remember the trailers being awesome; they were exhilarating. And knowing based on the look of the movie and based on the way it was being sold that I wasn't going to be getting another Jurassic film as I had come to know them, which excited me because I wasn't happy with the Lost World. And so I went in this uh, with pretty, I don't want to say high expectations, but knowing that I was going to get something entertaining. And whereas I did, I still got a Joe Johnston movie. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, a little bit slightly more poor production quality that, you know, anyway. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> I'm think starting to ramble with that point. To so. be when it came out and it, it achieves it is it just wants to be a fun summer movie. You know, it doesn't yeah. want to explore any deeper themes. It just wants to be like, you know, like I said earlier, a chase movie. And when you get that, you get a lot of really fun action. You get a lot of a visceral film going experience, which on, in all honesty is sometimes all you really need to be able to enjoy a movie. But I think people going into this, um, probably had more expectations of this being an adventure film like the first Jurassic Park, you know, like an Indiana Jones yeah, film or something like that. Jurassic Park to this point had set itself up as less action, more adventure. Uh, and it was missing yeah. that quality, but it was never really trying to be that either. So it's it's weird to kind of like – it's very hard to drop your expectations as a viewer going into this movie because the previous two films, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Lost World, but I give this – I mean it, it tried to do some stuff adventure-wise. This one is just like we're going from point to point to point to action sequence to action sequence. We'll drop some little bit – you know, a few character moments in and out over the course of the movie. So – but um, yeah, and that's – you know, and that's – during the summer when this came out, that's I think all that I really expected and all that I really got out of it. I remember you know seeing this movie and just being like, okay, I'm just here for like a good time. I, I don't remember there being really any hype around this movie, which was crazy. I remember it coming out and just yeah, being kind seriously. of kind of crazy, like, oh, there's a Jurassic Park movie coming out this weekend, you know, like that's but nobody's really talking about it, you know. I, I got to give it this. Uh, one of the things that the Lost World kind of veered from that the first film was so heavy on was the study of raptors and that particular type of dinosaur which was just such a uh, pivotal point in the whole thing this movie goes back to and I think it actually does it pretty well yeah it, it, um, we gets, get a, it gives us a new way to look at them yeah yeah absolutely and uh, we further explore their intelligence the fact that they are communicating with one another and uh, we'll go back to that PTSD thing whenever they're using the 3D printer which was really cool to build the um, the Raptors, oh, I can't remember exactly what uh, what part of it, uh, what, what you know, part of the body yeah, it's yeah, called. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, a communication part of the skull. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To make that call, and we see that it affects Grant. Yeah. Like you know, quite uh, vividly. Um, so I like that they did that. Now, this was, if I am not mistaken, I could be mistaken here. Around the time that they were starting to play with the idea that di Raptors might have had feathers. And whereas the idea of T-Rex kind of standing more, um, not standing like upright was something that they had developed, a theory they had developed right around the time of the first film. Well, they incorporated that into that film. Well, here they are incorporating this whole thing about raptors having feathers into the movie. Mm -hmm. So I got to give it to the filmmakers and Jack Horner, the paleontologist who's the, um, uh, forgetting the word, uh, the guy who's there to kind of assist in, in their 
you know, their sense of realism in these films, mm-hmm. uh, including that. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, I, th- I think it's cool too. Also, and this distinction was made when I was watching the movie, the male raptors have kind of a feather mohawk on top of their head. The female yeah, raptors yeah. look exactly like the female raptors in Jurassic Park did. And one of the reasons for that is if you look at birds specifically, males usually have kind of a more uh, robust feather pattern or, you know, look more outlandish than the females do. The reason being is the males have to get out there and try to do mating dances in order to convince the females that they're a good mate to go with. So you've got this at the very end of the movie, there's a male raptor and the female raptor, the, I guess, birth mother, den mother or whatever is there. She's the one who's sniffing Laura Dern to try to get the eggs back, like female to female. And I'm glad that they made... You mean mean, uh, Taylor um, did I say Laura Dern? I'm sorry. Yes, Tay Leone. Yeah. Tay Leone, who I like quite a bit, but I felt she was a little miscast in this movie. I think yeah. yeah. Tay Leone is a very smart, comedic actress. And in this movie, they asked her to be a little bit more action-oriented. And you can see that there's a little bit of a problem with casting there. But, you know, she doesn't ruin the movie or anything, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, so that visual distinction, though, of putting the feathers on the raptor was a really cool idea. And it makes them look different. You know, they, they tried to make all the dinosaurs in this movie look distinct. Yeah, uh, which was cool. You know, while we're talking about uh, Tay Leone's performance here mm-hmm. and the Raptors, um, there is actually a moment at the end whenever they're surrounded by the Raptors and she's got to take the eggs and put them out. Uh, and she plays afraid just exceptionally well in that moment. I mean, I totally buy the fact that this is a real Raptor up in her face, even on, like on her face, based on uh, how afraid she's playing it. Yeah. Um, so where yeah where are there some whereas there are some weak moments in her uh, performance that's one there's a there's a little moment at the beginning where the Kirby's that's William H Macy uh, who's another you know very well thought of actor in the film um, they're meeting with Alan and Billy in the bar yeah. and they're trying to convince them that they are like this rich power couple or whatever it is who want like a private tour of the island and she makes some point where she says like yeah we actually have tickets on the first commercial flight to the moon or something yeah. And her reading of it, I remember being like, was that real? What the hell was that? But now going back and seeing the film and knowing that they were, you know, phony yeah. and faking the whole thing, it's actually pretty cool that she's reading it that poorly. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice, by the way, that the pinball machine behind them in that scene is a Jurassic Park pinball machine? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy. I would love Crazy. to have that pinball machine, by the way, if uh, I, I need to find that. Um, But yeah, so that's – and that's kind of one of the themes in this movie I didn't catch the first time I saw it is that, you know – there's a lot of lying going on in this movie. You know, people are carrying secrets. It's it's an easy screenwriting trick is that you have somebody kind of like pull back and they're not actually what they are. You know, the Kirby's are not right. of Kirby Enterprises billionaires. You know, they're you know, wealthy probably, albeit, uh, you know, tile distributor in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin <laughs> or something like that. That was pretty funny, yeah. And he says like, yeah, we, we just relocated to the shopping center or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I heard it too, a, yeah. And then the dude... Uh, Udesky is like, so is that real? You actually have that business? And interested in like getting some new backsplash or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny too because Udesky and his, uh, you know, guys are not, you know, these like ex-SEAL Team 6 guys. Like they've kind of set themselves up to be. They're probably just yeah. due to like reading Soldier uh, Fortune magazine and collecting guns and right. stuff like that on the black market. But they, you know, he has no real skill set when they actually get into, a, you know, a situation where he needs to be protecting. Doesn't them. he say, does he say something about how he's a travel agent or something uh, like that? Yeah, I think he 
said he said it's something like he sets up excursions or something like that. Yeah. So he probably See, I mean, is. Okay. I don't know. He's he, maybe he's a guy who negotiates uh, PMC deals for like you know that have to go yeah. over and protect uh, oil guys in Iraq or something like that. But him himself, he's never really seen any combat time, and it shows pretty Those... quickly because his entire crew gets offed in the first like few minutes of the movie. Right. Now, okay, I guarantee you a lot of that stuff comes from Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne's presence on the screen. Oh, I'm sure it does, yeah. Uh, I mean, these guys were given a, a very short time to rewrite this movie, and it, you can tell their character work is, is pretty good. Is pretty, you know, they explore the PTSD. Everybody's lying to each other. The little screenwriting tricks that work, and I think they work in this movie. Now, did you know that they actually shot this movie without a completed script? That they were just getting like... Yes. Yeah, they were getting... They had some storyboards. Stan Winston Studio did a wonderful job working on the Spinosaurus. They had some animatics and stuff like that and some ideas, but then when it actually came time to shoot everything, they were just getting like pages that now, day. Exactly. I can remember hearing news uh, bits as it, the production went along about what a horror show this was. And I even remember, and I, I could be making this up, but um, in my memory, but I remember hearing that there were times where William H. Macy and Sam Neill had to sit down and write scenes because they were just, it was such a cluster yeah. that they were out of script. They were throwing things out and, all of this, so it just came down to Sam Neill and William H. Macy being like, okay, th this is what has to happen right here, otherwise we're not going to shoot anything, yeah. and this is going to get worse. And, you know, I think this movie is a result of kind of studio excess. You know, like... Universal, yeah. I mean, I, I know you were saying that they you know, wanted this movie to be its own thing. I think that's actually a byproduct of them really not having an idea of what they wanted to do going into it. That could have been it. And I think that, that been it. Um, yeah. you know, I think that they did a, a decent job of like editing it and marketing it on the back end to kind of make it fit what they wanted it. But more than anything else, this is kind of the result of studios looking at a release date and then deciding they want to make a movie around it. And we've recently, very recently, in the last couple of days, um, there was a Friday the 13th movie that was supposed to come out. Do you know about this? No. So um, it was a it was a deal struck between Warner Brothers and Paramount, where Paramount wanted a piece of the Interstellar pie. So they kind of like saw that this movie was going to be a hit, and they were like, "Hey, can we have a financial stake in this?" And Warner Brothers is like, "I don't know what you got for me." And they're like, "Well, we have the Friday the Thirteenth rights. Would you guys want to take this?" And Warner Brothers is like, "Hell yeah, dog! We're going to make another Friday the Thirteenth movie. Those things are cheap and they make a lot of money. We'll we'll you know we'll pop one out." And then they put a release date down and had no idea what they wanted to do. And from the sound of it, they have brought in they had brought in all sorts. Of, well, they have five years to make the movie, right? Brought in all sorts of teams wow. to work on it. Uh, these teams come in and realize real quickly that the studio was overthinking everything about the movie. They wanted to show why it was Jason came back to life all the time, you know, or they wanted to tie in all this weird stuff. And the teams who had worked on this were like, you know, given the time constraints you have here, we can't really pop out a, a script for you. Just like, kind of like Jurassic Park 3 is, uh, that Universal had done here, they just kind of wanted to keep the intellectual property alive. And unfortunately, they came up to a point where they were like, we cannot release this movie within the time given uh, to, you know, in that five-year thing. So basically, Warner Brothers gave up a huge chunk of Interstellar's profits to Paramount. Paramount gave them the Friday the 13th, uh, and they could not get a movie out in that time frame. So basically, Warner Brothers just gave Paramount a big chunk of the box office for <laughs> Interstellar. So very weird Jeez. story, but I find it fascinating how studios sometimes just – they, they, I don't know any other business in the world that would operate like this and consider themselves successful. Well, the Jurassic films are a great victim of that mm -hmm. because look at Jurassic World. 14 years between this and Jurassic World worth of screenplays coming and going and director and just all kinds of stuff that you, you know was the byproduct of studio notes. And I, I think any shortcomings that are in Jurassic World come from that. Yeah. 
You know, you know, too many damn cooks with too loud a voice getting in the way of what you know should be a better series than I think it's turned out to be. Right. Some some executive high up saying like, well, my career is staked on how good this movie does, and I'm I'm th- overthinking it. Not letting artists do what they do. Now, I, I don't know if you watched this or not, but I watched a fair amount of the behind-the-scenes documentaries by Stan Winston Studios on the Spinosaurus. Did you watch that stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Spinosaurus is an incredible piece of technology. The, the the puppeteering that went into this thing, the the late nights, you can see the Stan Winston Studio guys in there working on it. Um, it's it's an impressive puppet. It's an impressive animatronic. I think it looks really good in CG, and overall it's a very frightening dinosaur. I think that my hats are off to them for including it in this movie, because I think it, it's it's very frightening. It, it, just the idea that this thing could be chasing you on the island is very scary. You know, it's like it's like a it's yeah. like a slasher movie almost, where this spinosaurus just mm-hmm. kind of like shows back up to mess with everybody, you know, and take kill a couple yeah. of people. And uh, spinosaurus, for those who might not know, is a real dinosaur. Yeah. Man, that thing! Was it was in the I think believe the late Cretaceous period and the largest uh, land predator ever. And it's 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 like a gigantic crocodile. And I, you know, I've talked yeah. to people before about, you know, you and I live in the Deep South, and it is not completely uncommon for us to, to go out in the woods or the swamp or go fishing or something and not see a lot of alligators. And I've heard a lot of people say the difference between an alligator and a crocodile is that you will see the alligator. The crocodile will just straight up kill you, you know? And um, the this, this Spinosaurus is like a gigantic crocodile in the way its snout is, but the thing that makes it the scariest is that not just its size, it has forearms that it can use to great effect. You yeah. know, there's that one scene where they crash the plane, the fuselage is there, and it keeps turning it over and, like, crushing it with its arms, and you're like, oh, this is the big difference. That was between... a cool sequence. It's a, it's a very cool sequence. And, you know, it, again, it starts to chase off right, and it goes into one of my favorite sequences in any Jurassic Park film, the battle between the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Spinosaurus, which is very short-lived because you see very quickly how the Spinosaurus, given its forearms, is the dominant predator on that island. Right. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there you go. You know, just... That's evolution. You know? Yeah. So the original script, this... the original, so the Spinosaurus is the largest animatronic ever built. It weighed 12 tons and was operated by hydraulics, which allowed it to operate while completely submerged in water. Which, by the way, the boat sequence at the end of this movie I thought was fantastic. Uh, this movie has yeah, two great absolutely. action sequences in it, at least, and they are the Pteranodon. Uh, or the pterodactyls. I'm not exactly sure what that was. I think it was probably a pteranodon uh, in the aviary, but then also the boat sequence at the end. And you can see how fast that that Spinosaurus robot moves. It just like whips up out of the water and swings around. I think William H. Macy said that the head actually moved at something like 100 miles per hour left and right. Um, So I would not want to get hit by that animatronic. It'd probably break your spine, which is uh, funny given the name. But the original storyboards had a uh, what's called a baryonyx, uh, which is the main dinosaur instead of the Spinosaurus. Uh, the Baryonyx is a close relative of the Spinosaurus, and they looked basically the same. The Baryonyx was a little bit smaller and did not have the fin like the Spinosaurus did. The director, Joe Johnson, wanted a main dinosaur that would not be confused with the Tyrannosaurus Rex. So though the Baryonyx would have been vastly different, the Spinosaurus had a bizarre look to it that no other carnivore had. And it's very distinct. It's mean-looking. And, you know, when that thing is kind of like chasing them along the fence there, uh, which is also, I think, one of the best gags this movie has with the phone ringing from inside of its stomach, even though it's completely ridiculous. Uh, I think that it's it's a very, very frightening uh, animal for the movie. Yeah. Like when they turn around and that thing's just already standing there looking yeah. at them. The way like a big, if you are ever cornered by like just a big old Rottweiler or something like that, it's 
that's generally how th- it starts off is they're just kind of standing there sizing yeah you sizing up. you up yeah and it's yeah, definitely yeah, like yeah. sizing it's just the way it's breathing and staring at him with its mouth open it's a very frightening yeah. frightening shot to cut to so uh i i but i i like the i like the spinosaurus a lot and i like the idea that you know at, at one point i think um Alan Grant asks, and I don't remember his assistant, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of animal he thinks this is that is chasing them, and he they can't come up with a name. And I think that um, maybe Grant pulls a tooth out or something and says, I think that's a Spinosaur. And his yeah. assistant says, well, that wasn't on InGen's list. And he was he said, Grant says something like, yeah, it sounds like a lot of stuff wasn't on their list. So we kind of get this idea that there were rogue scientists within InGen working on different experiments. And the Spinosaurus may be one of them. I think we also see what Ankylosaurus there, what we haven't seen before. And there's also, I don't know the name of the dinosaur, but they're going through the Spinosaurus poop looking for the phone at one point. Like a Carnotaur or something like that comes up. Uh, it, yeah. That's actually a very scary, uh, much smaller and more mobile version of a Tyrannosaurus Rex that they probably could have based a movie around. But uh, so there's dinosaurs on this island that we have never seen before because engine scientists were just doing whatever they wanted, you know. Which right. is a the theme that does there's come back a, uh, up in, in Jurassic World. That's true. Um, so whenever you just mentioned uh, briefly the scene where they're going through the dino droppings yeah. by the uh, phone, and the thing walks up now. That could be, I, I see this as kind of two two ways. Yes, I have put that much thought into this little moment. Um, one, it's either the smell that drives the thing away, or do you think that it recognizes that it is the Spinosaurus droppings and says, "Whoa, I'm in Spinosaurus country. I need to get the hell out of here." I think I think it's both. I think you know, comedically, it plays as like it's not worth the time because that dinosaur doesn't want to go through the stinky smell of the poop. Uh, but I believe you're probably more correct because we do get a moment earlier in the movie when uh, the son Eric tells uh grant that he has collected tyrannosaurus p and that, yeah, that that's raptors will react uh yeah exactly so we we do kind of get that you know thing that the the, re- the way that these animals probably all live together on the island is they mark their territory and they don't go into each other's territory so i think yeah he probably got it there yeah. smelled the poop and was like have you ever found yourself in a situation and you're like i shouldn't be here and you just slowly back out of the room <laughs> you know like that's kind of <laughs> what the, that's kind of what that dinosaur is doing in that moment so did you know? Here's just a random, random little bit of trivia. I don't know if it's still for sale, but at one point you could actually buy Grant's shirt from this movie, <laughs> and uh, which I've seen before. Yeah, sometimes you can buy clothes from movies, and like it's always the most random stuff. Like um, the Rules of Attraction, which uh, movie I love. Uh, James Vanderbeek's like wardrobe in it you could buy, and I'm like, why the why? Of course I would buy it, but like. <laughs> Why the hell is the most random stuff like that for sale online? Anyway, I don't know if it's still for sale or not, but at one point in time, you could buy his uh, shirt from this. Did you know that Michael Crichton actually was brought in early on the production of this movie? No, uh, I didn't he, know that. W- he had come in early. Some of the, the early stuff about this movie was that Steven Spielberg and Michael Crichton were going to be working on ideas together for another movie. So Michael Crichton uh, was brought in with the screenwriter several days to brainstorm about a story, but left after some days after he could not come up with a satisfactory idea. You know, and it seems like there's there's a lot of cool things you could have done with the Jurassic Park 3 idea. I don't think this is the best one, but I think it's, you know, it's a fun summer movie that I think that given a little bit more work on a script probably could have been a lot better. And I think Michael Crichton is the guy who can come in and kind of come up with some really cool ideas for it. You know, I don't know how much of his stuff that he threw out was going into uh, the actual finished version of the movie, but we do know that they took a couple of scenes that were supposed to be in the original Jurassic Park or Lost World and stuck them into this That's movie. Right. And they, they are the um, 
the pterodactyl, excuse me, pteranodon aviary and the boat sequence there at the end. And I think that those both actually came out fantastic. I think that those are both really yeah. great sequences in the movie. But the pteranodon one especially because it's it really plays on the horror aspects of Jurassic Park better than I think anything else is done in the movie. The the se- There's a sequence where Grant wants to walk first down this uh, catwalk in the aviary to try to get from one area to another so they can get out. And it's covered in mist. Uh, and this is the same mist that we had seen earlier in the film. Grant walks right. through the mist and then the, another character wants to walk through and something is coming back at him and it's this really frightening gigantic pteranodon it, the, the pteranodons to me when I see them I don't really think that they're that scary you know like in pictures and stuff like that but this, the way they shot this thing like walking on all fours coming down out of the mist it's yeah. like something out of an alien film you know very cool. uh, and then you know earlier in the movie I was when I was rewatching this last night uh, the very opening sequence when the parasail guys get attacked and killed I was kind of trying to figure out like well, what animal would have done that are they implying that raptors were swimming and like ambushed them but it's pretty clear that the pteranodons came through picked them off and took them back to feed to the young because there's a moment where Eric right. gets into the nest and he actually finds a human skull so that's kind of how these things have been feeding themselves they've been picking off people that come close to the island or maybe pirates or whatever they get onto the island and feeding them to their young um so that's uh, I, I like that sequence a lot. I thought that it, uh, you know, clearly given the uh, technological aspects of the first film, they weren't able to do this kind of thing in the first movie. But I think it, it plays as a very, very terrifying sequence in the movie. Yeah. You know, a uh, real quick note on the um, Pteranodons escaping, mm-hmm. which I always thought at the end of The Lost World, when you see the very last shot, you see a, a Pteranodon land. I'm like, OK, they could fly off the island. Where are we going to go with this? Um, Jurassic World viral marketing kind of answered that question and they're talking about the character of Hoskins which was played by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and it says that he's in charge of like asset containment or something like that and that he had gone out and rounded up some uh, pteranodons that actually got off the island. So I thought that was neat that they answered that question, yeah. you know, for people like me asking. Yeah, and it's, um, but, you know, um, and uh, we'll cut ahead here to the very end of the movie, but the last shot of this movie is the pteranodons flying off the island, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's that's yeah. the was the original closing sequence to the first Jurassic Park until they replaced it with pelicans. That's right. Um, so I want to touch on a few more things here. Uh, we get them going to the engine facility that we saw Vince Vaughn running around through in the Lost World, and uh, I thought it was neat that they went back there. And there is a moment when they're wa- they're approaching the building where they walk by some abandoned vehicles. One of them is one of the tour jeeps from the very first movie, and I believe it was one that was actually used, uh, shot in the movie. But it's a neat little moment because Grant actually walks by it and looks inside, and it's just you know like I remember this all too well. But um, the the production design of a lot of the stuff that's in there is a little too science fiction-y for me. In what way? And it doesn't really fit. Um, just kind of the, uh, let me see, all of the mechanics of it look a little too elaborate. Like, I don't know if you would need these giant mechanical arms that would go down and like lift lids off of, uh, you know, the roo- the roofs of some of the, I don't know what you call it. Oh, so yeah, the, uh, the, the the hatchery stuff? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so yeah, the, the production design and all of that, I didn't think, it didn't really work for me that well. Mm-hmm. Now, we do get the raptor chase scene in the facility, which I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. 
uh, whenever the raptor comes up behind him and they got to push the gate closed and then it has to, he comes up over it and Grant recognizes that they're calling each other and everything. Mm-hmm. Very cool moment. Um, so there's something else here where they escape and then Grant is saved by Eric, the kid, who has now kind of adapted to the island and figures out how to, uh, you know, dodge the raptors by throwing T-Rex urine at mm-hmm. them. And it's a little much, but it works within this movie. And the fact that this movie is more playful than anything else, I think that it, it works in reference yeah. to that. Uh, there is a little reference to Ian Malcolm whenever you know, he gets Grant in, down into a shelter to help him, which uh, was kind of neat. Yeah, you know, uh, that first scene that he comes out to, have you ever seen – it reminded me a lot, and I'm sure that this was on purpose. Did you ever see the uh, Miyazaki film Princess Mononoke? No, I never did. It's fantastic. I'm not – I've gone on record, not an anime fan, but I love Miyazaki, and Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite films I've ever seen. And the way that Eric uh, disguises himself, it's exactly how Princess Mononoke, who is this uh, human princess who's kind of like living with giant wolves in the forest, she wears the exact same thing. She's an environmental protector, and there's people like drilling for oil in this forest, and she will like run up on them and throw smoke bombs at them and attack them with like swords and stuff, and she looks exactly like he does when he comes in to save Grant from the raptors. So I think that visually they were probably going for that same thing, and it it worked well. It's kind of a cool introduction of him, and you kind of get the idea that this kid is uh, more well uh, adapted to his surroundings and probably a better survivalist than any other person that's been in Jurassic Park, even Robert Muldoon, you know, like he's, <laughs> he's, um, you know, I want to give praise to this movie too for that. It really does a lot to disarm the characters early on and show that they have no fighting chance against the surroundings around them. Yeah. So the best way for them to live with it is try to survive and try to keep running, you know, like it, it, movies like this, I think that it, it w- would have been really easy to give Udesky a machine gun and have him start shooting at dinosaurs, you know, or being able to fight back on that level, but they can't in this movie. All they can do is run and hope to outrun dinosaurs. And I think that's to the movie's credit that they were able to disarm everybody. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, we start this movie off with, like, a huge arsenal uh, that Udesky's team is bringing in, and that is all gone almost immediately. And uh, like you're saying, yeah, the movie benefits from it, and that is to its It reminds me of uh, of Um, another third movie in a series, Alien 3, where Ripley gets on this prison planet, and they're like, oh, yeah, we have no weapons here except for maybe some, you know, fire axes and stuff like that. And it's – you immediately disarm everybody, and the stakes are raised exponentially. Absolutely. Uh, So if you don't have anything else for – the movie all in all, I'm going to go ahead and jump to the well, end. I, I do have a few things I just want to wrap yeah, up here ahead. Some uh, b- before we talk about the, the end. So um, the the Raptors refusing to abandon their young, that's actually from Jack Horner's research. Um, let's see. I've also got a very strange connection to the TV show ER in this movie. So Trevor Morgan, who plays really? Eric Kirby, also played Scott Anspaugh on ER in 1994. Scott Anspaugh was the son of Dr. Arnold Anspaugh, who was played by John Elward, who was the chief of staff. In Jurassic Park 3, he plays William H. Macy's son. William H. Macy played Dr. Morgenstein on ER, who was the chief of surgery. ER also created was created by Michael Crichton, who was the creator of the Jurassic Park franchise. So it's a funny little uh, tie-in. There's also a tie-in that apparently... Um, uh, the 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 mercenaries uh, were also on uh, Miami Vice and were killed, which is funny because uh, the guy who played Gennaro was a character on Miami Vice also. So the Miami Vice what? is a connection of characters getting eaten by dinosaurs <laughs> in awesome. this movie. So uh, yeah. wow, well, cool. So um, 
one of the things that kind of takes me out of the movie, one being the raptor dream sequence on the plane, mm-hmm. uh, the other is everything that goes down on the beach, which is kind of, it's interesting yeah. because that's where the end of the first uh, book ends, is they, they get to a beach and they're, you know, it's kind of like the only place they can go is to the ocean. Mm-hmm. But they get there and there's this little man in a suit with a bullhorn who's calling his name and then somehow they didn't hear the sound of the helicopters of the shuttles coming in onto the beach. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a little a little much. In these movies that they they ask me to suspend my disbelief, but they have scientific backing for all of it. And this is like asking me to do a little too much. Mm-hmm. But it works and it makes sense of the fact that Ellie had access to the State Department through her husband and was probably able to very quickly arrange, you know, uh a team of whatever the hell was needed to go in and get these people off. The I side. never connected the dots on that before that he was with the state department. That makes so much more sense. Yeah, I just I've, like the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, how is she able to scramble the military like that? It reminds me of the end of monster squad where all of a sudden the army shows up just cause the kids sent out a letter saying like, dear army guys, we need you. Yeah. Written in crayon or yeah. something. Yeah. No, she's um, married to the guy in the state department. Right. So, you know, if it hadn't been for that little baby, the three year old, <laughs> Uh, who I can't remember his name. They say in the beginning of the movie. Um, if it hadn't been for him, none of these people would have uh, would have survived. But no, yeah, she's able to contact her husband through the state department. Now I don't know if that's supposed to be him there in the suit. I, I don't know, but I think I have heard. And again, this could be one of those things that I just sort of made up in my mind. Um, that that was going to be John Hammond initially. Oh, and that this was going to be a cameo he made, which would not have really made much sense. But uh, so I'm kind of glad they didn't go with that. You know, it would, would have been better um, if it was a dream sequence at the end, and then Hammond also had a raptor head. I think that probably worked. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Duh. Uh, so, let's see. So, um, I guess my final thoughts on Jurassic Park 3 is that it works for me, but it works within that made-for-TV feel movie. And if you go into this thing knowing that you're going into something from a whole new director, from a whole new set of writers... Uh, you're probably not going to be as disappointed as I think a lot of people have been mm-hmm. because they didn't get something of the quality of a Spielberg movie. So if you go into it with that with that thought, I think you're going to get a pretty damn entertaining movie with some really cool set pieces like the Pteranodon attack and the boat sequence and um, you know a, a working return of your lead character. You know, it, it, his return works. I totally buy uh, even even the Kirby's reasoning for getting him to go back to the island. Uh, their bogus reasoning, which is, you know, we'll fund your dig or whatever. It's basically the same thing that Hammond was doing in the first film. It still works, you know? Yeah. It's still believable. So, and here's here's another thing for final thoughts. I think that Jurassic World feels like more of a follow-up to Jurassic Park 3 than it does the other two films. Really? It kind of lives with... I, I do, yeah. It, it seems to me like a more a movie that's more or less about fun than much else. Or it has that kind of fun feel to it that the first two films didn't have in the sense that they were fun, yes, but they were much darker and much more serious in tone. And Jurassic World and Jurassic Park 3 just have a more, to me anyway, a little bit more of a lighthearted feel. And so uh, it's that's kind of what connects, for me anyway, Jurassic World to the rest of the series is Jurassic Park 3. So if it hadn't been for that and that movie and Jurassic Park 3's uh, overall uh, tone, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't know that I would have been able to buy Jurassic World as a part of this continuing story. 
So, yeah, you know, the, the success um, of this movie is kind of interesting, too, because it made $181 million domestically in a $93 million budget. It made something like 383 worldwide. So it's, it was a pretty substantial uh, hit for Universal. But instead of following it up immediately with another Jurassic Park, which they probably could have done, they really did take their time to kind of like pull back and say, OK, what do we actually want this franchise to be? And this is the lowest grossing of all four Jurassic Park films that have been released, but whatever magical combination they did to get Jurassic World out there, it really worked. Like they, they definitely benefited yeah. from taking a step back and taking their time and saying, okay, you know, what is it that audiences want to see with this movie? Um, if Jurassic World artistically was successful, that's uh, you know something of debate, I think. Uh, but they definitely they could have moved on to Jurassic Park 4 and you know we've all heard the crazy ideas of what that would have been you know like human yeah. dinosaur hybrids and weird stuff like that but instead they kind of said okay where did we fall short in this movie and we gained ourselves some time and you know very substantial profit margin for the studio to work with what can we do here yeah absolutely um, and the film you know it, it opened to kind of mixed to poor reviews yeah, I think it's got 50% uh, on Rotten Tomatoes yeah, something like that. Roger Ebert uh, kind of gave it some slack and said that no, it's it's not a work of art, but it's still a fun right. movie. And I think that's a good. That's I think that's a pretty good way of looking at Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's not you know look, this is not Jurassic Park, but it is something that, especially if you're watching at home, uh, uh, you know, uh, years later after the movie came out, it's something that is engaging and is enjoyable. Now, if you went into the theater in 2001, that was when this movie was released, right? It's 2001. Uh, 2000 or 2001, we, we should know that we're doing yeah. it. Uh, so, you know, you know, well, it's funny because yeah, I think I looked on. it up earlier and I, I, was, I saw it as 2001, but then the movie was originally like supposed to come out in 2000, I think. Let me see. On the fly. I'm going to... It, it came out in... Yeah, 2001. Uh, so this is a pre-9-11 yeah. movie. Um, okay. So whenever this film was going to be released on home video, uh, Universal and the cell phone company Hop On partnered to produce the world's first disposable cell phone, which was available, which was available uh, through an in-package offer whenever you purchased the film. And the phones were to be delivered for free to customers who responded with, to a winning promotional card that came with select copies of the film. So they sent out 5,000 of these cards for people to get the world's first ever disposable fel- cell phone, but only 1,000 of them were redeemed. So the promotion was canceled when the cell phones could not be finished on time. So an investigation by the San Francisco Chronicle revealed that the sample versions of this hop-on cell phone were actually modified Nokia cell phones. So they weren't even using their own technology. They were just taking Nokias and switching them out so they could be thrown away. Uh, so hop-on was having a lot of trouble with its own design. So customers who were supposed to receive the cell phones instead received a $30 check and a free DVD of the movie, which was funny because they had to have that DVD in order to get the thing yeah. in the first place. But it's funny because the idea of a burner cell phone is really what you know the kind of the core crux of shows like breaking bad you know like these drug dealer phones that can be (laughs) taken and used and tossed away so i just thought that was a very strange promotional tie-in i guess they were given it it was to tie into the phone that the spinosaurus ate you know strange very strange uh, that is all that I have for Jurassic Park. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I uh, with a lot of the points you've made here, I think that this movie is an enjoyable uh, movie to watch. It, you know, if you went into the movie theater in 2001 expecting something to be like, you know, a, 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 the the next coming of Jurassic Park, you were probably walking out of there disappointed. But like you said, with Roger Ebert's uh, view of the movie, it, it's a fun summer movie. It fulfills that itch that you want for. Uh, just an escapist experience and that's pretty much all that it is so yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get out of here, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today for our discussion on Jurassic Park 3. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get out of here. You ready, Brady? Let's go. All right, folks. We're going to get out of here. Everybody have a great weekend. And from the bottom of our hearts, mahalo. Mahalo.